Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on August 17th, 2017. Events are moving quickly, but our goal today is to focus on the economic stories that are often subsumed by coverage of political intrigue. Uh, we'll try to give a snapshot of what's going on in the U.S. economy in light of growing political instability and how people can be thinking about protecting their finances from the risks. Uh, Ronaldo, let's start with what you think the significance of the business response to the tragic events of the past weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia. Well, thank you, Matt, because I think that is probably the most important question we could start with today. And the reason I say that. Um, it, it has nothing to do with politics. Uh, I'll distinguish business from politics in a moment. But when the when the academy started 30 years ago, uh, and um, uh, we, we, we our goal, our mission, our purpose statement, everything goes to one thing, which is to get business to take responsibility for the whole. That's our model for the whole of society. And we've been urging business to get more and more proactive as we saw the political systems that govern this country continue to deteriorate over the last three decades. I could not be more proud of what business did this week. It is business that is finally taking a stand and saying, you know what, as stewards of public goods and services, we cannot stand by idly in the face of what is completely unacceptable political conduct. And I say that uh, because when, when you had the revolt of CEOs, and I'm going to call it the revolt of CEOs, so it almost sounds like the revolt of Spartacus, except the CEOs are far more powerful than the White House, ultimately, I believe. Um, you know, and, and people don't know this, but it, it, bell, it built up very, very, uh, kind of like a snowball. Uh, I started hearing from uh, senior executives within 15 minutes of the president's remarks, and it was clear that something different was happening. And the front page story of the New York Times today really says it all. It, it, it identifies how um, Indira Nuri, who is basically the CEO of PepsiCo, became so troubled, she got on the phone immediately with Mary Barra, another female, at General Motors CEO. And they also got a hold of uh, Virginia Ramati, the CEO at IBM. So these three female CEOs agreed that it was time to call the question, so to speak. It was time for business to get clear. Although, in, in, as, um, as um, the Yale professor uh, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld commented only yesterday, never in the history of America have CEOs been unwilling to advise the president since the founding of the republic. I mean, it's just never happened. But in this case, business made a statement, first in, in, in deciding to unravel the strategic initiatives, which called the Strategic and Policy Forum, and that's what Indira Nuri, Mary Barra, Virginia Romney, and others were part of. And it, 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 it became clear they could not serve alongside of this president, given the pressure that they had internally as Americans, as human beings, given the pressure they knew they were already starting to experience from their share owners, from their customers, from their employees, that this level of alienation of a small section of the country, this cult that follows Mr. Trump, 
Uh, that alienation was so great now, it was a threat to these business enterprises to continue to be associated with the White House. Now, that's an outstanding statement I just made. And why I'm so proud of the business leadership is because they were willing to take that stand. And I'm sure they know that 67, according to CBS poll this morning, 67% of the Republicans approve of what President Trump did on Tuesday. So that's 67% of Republicans, which is the Republican base, basically has endorsed anti-Semitism. They have endorsed white supremacy. They have endorsed the KKK, and they've endorsed the neo-Nazi movement in America. And I love the quote from Senator Orrin Hatch, a Republican, who said uh, on Tuesday, my brother, referring to his brother, did not die in World War II fighting Nazis, so I would have to watch them parade on the streets of Charlottesville. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. His brother did not die in World War II fighting Nazis overseas to have this happen and have them kill an American, an innocent American in Virginia. So I'm so proud of the business community for stepping up. And I'm now calling on the business community to take it to the next step. And the next step is to recognize that if 67% of the Republican Party is part of a Trump cult, which I guess is about 20% of the electorate, and assumedly at least 20% of the consumers, business has to be willing to say, you know, we're okay if you're a Republican, we're okay if you're a, a progressive, we're okay if you're a Democrat, but we're not okay if you're a white supremacist. And they're going to have to make sure that their contributions and their moral influence does not continue to feed into the cycle of violence, which I'm concerned is now going to become much more prevalent. It's amazing to me that Barcelona this morning, unfortunately, had another terrorist event where a van driven by a terrorist plowed into a crowd, killing, killing one, interestingly, just like the terrorist in Virginia plowed into the crowd, killing one American woman. We're hearing reports that that just happened this morning, so the death toll is likely to rise, but yes. It, it is likely to rise. And, you know, 20 people were seriously injured, not just one death in the case of, of um, a higher. Charlottesville, yeah. Yeah, Charlottesville. Um, the the reason, though, I think it's important to note to note that rise of continuing terrorism overseas. I'm a, I'm concerned it's going to rise here in America as the hate climate takes hold further. But now I'm also concerned about the fact that what bumped that story off the front page of the Financial Times just 30 minutes ago, 40 minutes ago, was that Trump went on record again saying that he's considering a military option against the country of Venezuela. Ben Sass, a Republican senator from Nebraska, considered the most, probably the most conservative Republican in the Senate, said that Nebraskans are not going to die for in, in Venezuela, no matter how horrible Maduro, the leader there is, because the president decided to whip out his uh, his, his anger at Venezuela in order to create additional news, news that theoretically would cover up and distract us from where we were as of Tuesday and where the business community was. Uh, his exact quote was, Nicolas Maduro is a horrible human being, but Congress doesn't vote to spill Nebraskans' blood based on who the executive lashes out at today. Well, I'm calling on Republicans in the political establishment to take sides. The vast majority, with the exception of Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and Jeff Fluke, 
have not taken a position and ever used the name of the president or Trump in conjunction with this neo-Nazi activity, and they must now name it so. I would hope that at the very least, the Congress would censure the president for his conduct. And I think the Republicans need to show up and vote for it. The Democrats need to show up and push it by name. The progressives need to be able to understand how we can expand beyond this level of conflict. And those members of the Republican Party who represent the traditional Republican Party, the third of the Republicans who do not support the, the, the Trump cult, they must stand up and, and speak to what they want their party to be in the future because it appears that two-thirds of their party is now pro-Nazi, pro-KKK, pro-anti-Semitic, pro-fascist. It's time for the Republicans to speak out about that. And it's time for the Democrats to separate themselves into people who are going to continue to play footsie. I'm going to mention one. I'm not going to mention the name. I received a funding solicitation this morning from a Democrat requesting that I put money into his coffers so he can go back to Washington and work on the people's business. And there wasn't one word mentioned of Charlottesville. There was not one word mentioned of KKK or anti-Semitism or, you know, or people chanting with torches in the middle of the night at the University of Virginia, uh, Jews out, um, you know, um, what is it, sword and soil, which is a Nazi. What? Blood and soil, which which is a Nazi... Uh, uh, chant. Uh, it, it, it's astounding to me. And I get from a Democrat, not even a whiff of mention of what's going on, nor even a reference to the fact that the Russian inquiry continues to spill staggering data that as of today, this very call on August 16th, today, we are looking at a situation where the, uh, excuse me, it's August 17th, where the, where the actual finagling, the actual hacking, the actual releasing of emails by the Russians intentionally into our political process to sow confusion and dissent is continuing even as I speak. There is a disinformation campaign that has been spreading since July 12th about a phony story concerning Hillary Clinton, of all things, and the Ukrainians. It's been tied now back to the exact same Russian sources that did the the email data dump originally in collusion with the Trump organization. And they're doing it today and they're going to do it in the next election, which is why the Republicans must speak up, why the Democrats must speak up and why I'm so grateful the business community has already spoken up. And I hope will speak up with even greater force because it is now clear to the business community, I believe. And I want to speak now for the business community that not only. Is the business community in jeopardy of getting its, 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 its tax break from 35 to 15%? Not only is the business community likely to not get a tax break to repatriate foreign earnings at 5%, not only is the, ta- is the business community not likely to get an infrastructure bill, and I could list at least three or four more things the business community really wanted and was willing to put up with Trump to get, those things aren't going to happen in the foreseeable future. And the business community knows that. So they get a little concerned. And the stock market, as you know, is off today. I predict the stock market is, has been at its peak for the last couple of weeks. This is just one more thing that's going to take it down. But I do believe there will be a correction this year. And I just want to finish this one thought. What the business community now knows, apart from all the goodies it's not going to get that it thought it could if it played footsie with Trump, what the business community now knows is that Trump is capable of plunging the economy 
of the United States of America into a deep recession and a stock market correction of 30% or more. That's what the business community now knows. And believe me, they're working overtime to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. And I, I want to just ask a question here, Ronaldo, because I think that what you're getting at is very important. Um, but I want to point out that you and I have, you know, in our personal time, we, t- we discuss politics frequently. But on this show, we've been avoiding getting too deep into any specific criticisms since January, looking specifically instead at the indicators, the, the real economy, um, the numbers, and focusing on uh, what we see as the trends in the future. But we've taken a pretty sharp turn here at the beginning of today's show, and I want to just get your response as to why you think it's important to do that right now, why this moment is different, and uh, just basically clarify for our audience why we're, we're starting the show this way. Yeah, I, because, Matt, and thanks for asking, so I can't clarify. No, I, I, we're not going to revert to politics on this show. We're, this, this, this show is going to continue to be about how people can protect themselves. And clearly, they're going to need more protection now than ever, given what's about to happen. But I, um, I felt that it was so critical. And this is the 30th anniversary of the Academy. We set out with the, with the goal 30 years ago to get business to take responsibility for the whole. That's our motto, for the whole of society. And and business hasn't been willing to do that collectively until this moment. And so I believe we have we have crossed over. As you know, Matt, and anybody who's listening to the show, I've long believed that business is more powerful than politics. And that as the politics in this country and the world continue to devolve into more and more mudslinging and, and more and more irrelevancy, and as the political systems broke down, that business needed to come forward and take the responsibility for the outcome if our civilizations were to move forward. Let me give you an example, which we've touched on in this program and we'll be talking about again in the future. It is business right now that is leading the charge to curtail the worst effects of climate change. It is business that's leading the charge to make sure that we exceed, meet or exceed the Paris goals. Now, we are being joined in business by the governor of the state of California, uh, Jerry Brown, we're being joined by mayors all over the country, the governor of Washington, Jay Inslee. All of these organizations that are political at the local level, below the federal, are also falling in to lockstep to, to create for the United States as a whole that we meet or exceed our Paris goals. And, and for the president to say he's pulling out of Paris is laughable because no country is allowed to pull out, I think, before 2020. So we're in until 2020. Until, that's the first exit date. Um, and, and, and maybe in 2022, if I'm not mistaken, I have to go it's, look up the treaty. It's after the 2020 elections. Yeah, that's what I thought. So it is 2020. So the, the, the bottom line is we in business are finally stepping up, and that's been the Academy's mission all along. Now, we're not going to turn this show into a political commentary because Lord knows that would that would, I think, defeat the main purpose of the show, which is to help people understand these complex economic times the complex choices being uh, forced upon us as to how to protect our small nest eggs if we have one, how to climb out of debt if we're a student, or how to be able to retire if we're 70 and we haven't got enough money to save up, and that's the case for most boomers, by the way. I mean, these are the important issues that deal with people's wallets and their pocketbooks, and these are the issues I want to keep talking to. But at the same time, we have to stop and acknowledge that the number one objective of the World Business Academy when I founded it 30 years ago has now been achieved collectively, not isolated examples that we've worked with for many years in business, but collectively, 
the business community is saying we're going to have to set a different agenda in front of the American people. And they're understanding they have to do it now, not just because it's the right thing. And I believe that's what motivated uh, Nuri, uh, Mary Berra and uh, Romerty. I think they're doing it because they realize it's the only way their business organizations will be able to prosper in the future. So I know they're going to stick to it now. It's really interesting. Um, before we pivot away from politics, uh, just to think about what the, the various checks on power are in the country. And, you know, you'll hear people talking about various constitutional balance of powers, uh, Congress's role, the role of the courts, the fourth estate, which is journalism, which I would say has stepped up um, pretty amazingly since January. Uh, but reluctantly, reluctantly. It yes. took, well, they, they sat on the sidelines and covered the horse race as if it were all a game until um, it became really clear that they were on the they were at first in line in terms of the ramifications of the crackdown on free speech and movements against the Constitution. But my point, too, is that there's another check that you're talking about and that people don't really talk about very much, but is really important and potentially the most important, which is what the business community does and how they you know, use their uh, direct lines into the administration um, and their public statements to actually... Uh, check a what what appears to be an executive branch out of control. Um, you know, I think that I, I'm really glad that we're seeing real movement there, Ronaldo. I, I'm I'm on the fence as to whether we'll go back to some sort of status quo uh, if it, if it doesn't. You know, if, if there's a solution here that solves this immediate problem, but I'm hoping that what we're seeing is a new responsibility for. Uh, outcomes and and not just protecting their brand but actually taking care of their customer base uh you know it's a uh, it's it's real it's this is true they have to actually protect the people that they rely on to make their businesses go so thank you for that and, and i think it's a very important reflection that we don't hear very often in the media yeah uh and i and i and, and i know we're going to tie this back so just to make sure that people are understanding there are real world implications to this stuff, folks. One of the things that makes the president, uh, Mr. Trump, so dangerous is that he doesn't get that there is there's a difference between reality and a reality TV show. Mm -hmm. So there are real world consequences when you do the stuff he's doing. And what the business community is now starting to do is to translate what it perceives would be the negative outcomes of some of this most agree more egregious conduct. Um, I'm looking today, today example, if you look at the most current, literally today's um, uh, Financial Times of London, and you will see that the forecast for the GDP growth going forward of this country is 3.75%. I'm going to go on record and say that's absolutely impossible. I've been saying that for a long time, but now I'm going to say it with incredible confidence. Now, the fact that we've been able to eke out over 2.5% growth so far this year, I think is astounding. It's stunning. We've had you know, one quarter this, this year already where there was no growth. Uh, the current quarter, there has been moderate growth. I believe the next quarter, the one we're, going, we're in now, is going to show even less growth than the last one. I think the fourth quarter is going to show on a uh, annualized and an adjusted basis, meaning Christmas to Christmas. I think it's going to show that we're performing below where we did last year, and by the first, which was the indication of a slide into recession, and by the first quarter of this year, 
certainly by the end of the first quarter, everybody's going to know what I'm telling you right now, which is the economy is not sustainable given the attacks by Russians, the attacks by the White House, and the resistance is now being posed by the business community, and what I perceive will be greater resistance by the political forces in the months directly and immediately ahead. So fasten your seatbelt, folks. It's going to get pretty bad. And if you haven't already removed yourself from most of the S&P 500, better do it today. Wouldn't wait any longer. This so, ride is over. So let's talk about that and let's get into the economics now, Ronaldo. How do you see consumers reacting to an increasingly intense and frightening political environment? Well, as we've covered in the show in the past, remember we talked about several months ago about how the Hispanics have been closing off their spending. We showed, we cited a study several, a couple months ago on that. And, you know, there's 11 million, theoretically, 11 million illegal people here. That's then there's immigrants. Uh, illegal undocumented, immigrants, yeah. undocumented. Then you can figure that they each know a couple of people. So you're probably talking 20, 30 million Hispanics. Now, Hispanics as a group do not have a high disposable income profile, particularly folks that are undocumented. However, they do spend all that they get normally because they need it to live. Right now, the Hispanic community has been tightening its belt, saving up its money. The savings rate, I predict, will continue to go up in the United States currently in the months directly ahead. It won't, we won't be seeing increased consum consumption, consumer behavior. Uh, and, and that, in the Hispanic community, was a direct result of this unbelievable policy of attacking uh, DACA or DREAMers uh, and the policy of attacking people who had no criminal offenses and people who've been here for you know decades with kids that were born and raised here. This, 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 this new vitriolic, clearly based in the white supremacist ideology to get all these undocumented out of our country, totally a part of what you think about immigration. And, and, and I think immigration is a great topic we should cover even in this show because of the pending proposal to dramatically cut legal immigration. So it'd be part. It'd be smart to talk immigration generally, but in terms of consumption, the Hispanic community has already slowed down its purchasing. I believe that the rest of the country is now going to follow suit. I believe that people are so nervous, and they should be, about where we are, where this is all headed. When you have people like Brian Williams on the eleven o'clock eleventh hour, ending his program two or three nights in a row, saying, "Where does this all end?" When you have Charlie Rose starting his day on the CBS Morning Show with the same question, where does this go? And he's saying it with honest, sincere inquiry, because he doesn't know either, none of us do. But we do know that people living in fear don't spend their money. They save it, and they get ready, if necessary, to flee. But they don't spend. Now, the vast majority of 350 million Americans ain't gonna flee anywhere, we know that. But if they slow down their spending in a consumer economy like ours, it absolutely makes a serious problem for the economy. And that's the, the problem we see on the fundamentals that we saw building since January. We predicted it would hit before the end of this year. It is hitting before the end of this year. And the implications of it will be suffered in the fourth quarter and beyond. So I, I'm, I'm just very concerned for the economy and on a fundamentals basis. And I'm very concerned uh, for the soul of America on a political basis. Yeah. But this is going to stay a, a show about economics and how money matters to you. So I'm not going to go there other than to say the obvious need for no further explanation. So, Ronaldo, that's really interesting um, because 
the the mainstream narrative in the financial press and when it breaks through into the more mainstream press is that the economy is on an upward trajectory. It's fine. Uh, I forget the quote exactly, but it was something like uh, recessions. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, recoveries don't die of old age. Um, essentially saying that the fundamentals are decent, unemployment's low, and people should stay uh, calm and engaged and potentially ride the wave continuing upward. Now, I have, a, I have an idea that came to me while you were speaking about the, spe- the, the fear specifically among communities of undocumented immigrants and their families. There's a real stratification in our country between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and that stratification is clear and even on a cultural level that these two communities don't interact and talk to each other much. So there could be great fear at one level that isn't being reflected in the behavior of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the, the extremely, high wealthy, extremely high wealth individuals and their functionaries on Wall Street. What do you think? You know, is the market just missing the real consumer fear that's out there or are... Are we, you know, uh, what, why isn't this being reflected on Wall Street is my question. Okay, for the same reason it wasn't reflected in 2008. For the same reason it wasn't reflected in 2000. Both of which led to massive recessions in 2008 to the worst ones since the Great Depression. Why did all the smart people miss that? Can you answer that question, Matt? Well, because they were intentionally uh, not covering it. Because they were intentionally wanting to believe that the party wasn't going to end. Pop another champagne cork and just keep going. Look what we pulled off. Right. We've defied gravity. We've, uh, uh, what was um, the former Fed chairman's uh, uh, Greenspan. comment? Greenspan's comment, ex- exa- ex- exuberance, what was it? It was exaggerated exuberance or something? Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, and, and what, he was, what, he was, what he was commenting on is an unbelievable degree of hubris. That's a great Greek word, hubris. And what it, what, it, what it speaks to is what many of us learned as children, pride goeth before the fall. In other words, being, being all stuffed up with yourself, being so full of yourself that you can't conceive of how anything that's been going so great could end because look how great it is. And you get detached from reality. And I believe that, that Wall Street— exuberance. Irrational exactly, exuberance. Yes, that's, yeah, irrational exuberance. It was irrational in, 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 in 2000. And it still happened. In 2008, it happened even worse. So, and that's, I think he coined it in 2000, by the way. Um, So my feeling is that there's a biblical saying, I'll quote, there are none so blind as those who will not see. In other words, if if you've chosen to believe what it is you're going to find, you will find it. Because you can find statistics that amaze you but you go, okay, well, if this is happening, I guess we're okay. Let me give you an example. Um, just today, a really great article came out on the Fed and how the majority of the Fed commissioners, when they look at low inflation and low unemployment, they go, gee, that can't continue for much longer. We're going to see inflation spike next year. Now, that's, that's an interesting conclusion, and it's historically accurate. Is it accurate for the time we live in? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it is. Um, I'm not so sure that what we don't have now, that we've never had before, because we've hollowed out the middle class, I can see where you could continue to have low unemployment, meaning people accepting jobs for far less 
than they need to make at the same time not being afraid to change that job and asking for more money therefore not having any wage push inflation as a result the cost of goods and services remains low provided the executive branch doesn't create for example a trade war with china which will drive prices up provided the executive branch doesn't declare a boycott of venezuelan oil which will drive prices up provided that the executive branch doesn't shoot itself in the foot in some other way which we'll be watching for what business has realized is we can't expect anymore for the executive branch of government to do what's in its own self-interest and therefore watch for incredible pressure on the congress to start behaving like adults in the meantime Consumers faced with these obvious conflicts, consumers faced with the uncertainty, and everybody would agree we have uncertainty right now, can only be reflected in one way, and that's decreased consumption. People aren't going to increase their consumption because of it. They're going to decrease it. And as they decrease it, it's going to have a deleterious effect on the economy. And I believe you're going to see that the multiples of the stock market, reflected in the S&P 500, can simply not be sustained because they're at 22 PE which is at least you know, higher, than, it shouldn't be more than 12 right now, max. So where does this market go? It's gotta go down 30%. And the question is when? What's the triggering event gonna be? I can't tell you for sure, no one can, but I believe a triggering event is in the offing. So Ronaldo, the, the prediction of a 30% uh, stock market collapse essentially, or correction as they call it. I don't know the terms actually when it gets to 30%, if that's a collapse or a correction, it sounds pretty big to me. Uh, but there's other- let, me, let me define that for you. Yeah. So a correction is a, is a normal pause that the market makes in any forward advance where you see at least a 10% drop. That's a correction. When you see a 30% correction, it's now in the neighbor, it, 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 it's bordering on a stock market collapse. When you get above 30%, you're in collapsed territory. So if you take, for example, 2008 as a yardstick, uh, we hit a 40 plus percent correction, which is which people would define as a collapse of the market. Yeah. And everybody listening who had money in the market in 2008, thank God I didn't, um, knows what it's like to wake up one morning with 40% less money than you had the night you, before when you went to sleep. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, we don't know the triggering event. We don't know when, uh, but the the somewhere between a collapse and a correction is on the on the offing. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're advising people to do with their money and how our uh, the the fund that we have a relationship with, you know, just as an advisor, not as any formal relationship, has performed in the past uh, over the past what is it nine months? Yeah, so so people who've been listening to this show for any length of time know that there's a thing called the World Business Academy Advised Fund at uh, First Affirmative. First Affirmative is the oldest, over 30-year-old uh, association of financial advisors in the country. The chairman of the board of that organization is George Gay. Uh, George will be listening to this show as he listens to all of our shows. And following this show, he will make adjustments in the portfolio based in part on what we say on this show and based in part on his own experience of how to implement what we say in terms that will best protect uh, individual investors. Uh, I'm really excited to report that in the last 12 months, and I just got the 12 month number literally a week ago, in the last 12 months, our World Business Academy advised fund, which as everyone listening knows, is designed to be something safe. We design it to protect 
your downside, not to maximize your upside. In fact, multiple times I've said over the last couple of years, we're happy to get three to five percent above inflation because we aren't shooting for the fences here. We're shooting to preserve your capital as best we can in turbulent times. Well, I am proud to report that for the last 12 months, we have achieved a 9.9% return on invested capital in an extraordinarily safe portfolio. I mean, we got 20% gold in that portfolio, which produces no revenue return. So you can imagine how well we're doing on the rest of it. Now, I'm, I continue to recommend to people, and as Matt pointed out, we, we have no economic interest in that fund. We do not receive a fee from First Affirmative. We do not receive any compensation whatsoever for recommending that people consider talking to First Affirmative uh, to see if they can get involved in the in the World Business Academy advised fund, which permits you to take, be part of the First Affirmative network without meeting their normal uh, large capital standards for clients. They, I think uh, I don't want to quote. It's, it's in the hundreds of thousands. Usually you have to have if you're going to be a First Affirmative client. But if you go into the advised fund, it's a fraction of that so that little people with small investments can get in and protect themselves. And I'm grateful to George Gay and his team for taking the time and the trouble to help the listeners to this show and others who are fighting to preserve the twenty-five dollars to $100,000, if that, that they've got at this stage in their life and that they don't want to lose and that they need to get to keep with them all the way to retirement. So I'm grateful. We're doing very well. What do I see coming in the future? Um, we've spoken in previous recent shows about REITs. Uh, they continue to be performing with real estate investment trust. They continue to perform well. However, um, I'm putting them on the on the watch list. I'm not ready to sell yet, but on the watch list because uh, as the economy starts to gear down, which it will, it will eventually reflect itself on valuations for properties that REITs own. Uh, we're not there yet. We'll have time to adjust that portion of the portfolio. Uh, but I want people to be aware of it. Uh, we're looking at that. Um, we also um, believe strongly, and I've actually talked to George about this directly, um, I don't believe there will be a lot of time to get out of the market once the triggering event happens. In other words, once the triggering event occurs, the market's not going to go down slowly over a period of months. There's going to be what's called a break. I mean, let's say, like a, literally going off the cliff. And that break is going to cause a 20 to 30% correction over a very short period of time. And trying to sell your stocks in that break is going to be try, trying to sell when you're in free fall. It's just, it's a very hard time to sell. And so one of the issues that George and I talked about is how much warning, how much notice will people get that the market's about to crater? And the answer is almost none. So part of why we designed the our comments to be so defensive in nature is because we don't think there's going to be time for little people to get out. Um, some of the bigger players might be able to trigger massive interactions in the market using computerized trading so that in split seconds, they're moving huge blocks of stock, which will further accelerate the downward trend, by the way. But the little guy, the little people like us, we're not going to have that luxury. So we're going to have to get out before the break rather wait for the break to occur and then get out if we want to save 30% of our assets, of our liquid assets, of our investment assets. Um, now, where are some of the places you can go to try and do that? What are some of the things we're looking at to add that we aren't doing now that we could do more of? 
Um, there is a very interesting fund uh, which carries basically financing of renewable energy projects. I believe that no matter what the state of the economy, renewable energy projects are here to stay. So a, a, an organization with a good track record of investing in the financial paper, if you will, of those organizations is a really good idea. I want to talk about something that we've also been very skeptical of in this in this show, and apparently we got it right. For months and months, we've been talking about stay away from the bond market. And what we kept saying to people as recently as the last two shows, you what you think you're going to get in interest, you can lose overnight in the reduction of the value of the bond itself, the face value. And sure enough, despite the fact that um, bonds are more attractive in terms of current yield, we're seeing some fall offs in the bond market that are significant. And that's unusual because usually when bond markets fall off, stock markets go even higher. There's a theory in the market. Um, where are you going to go with your money? Because every day more money pours into 401ks. Every day more money needs to be put back to work, so to speak. So that money historically has to find a place to go. And if the, if, 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 if the bond market is not doing well, it goes into stocks. Uh, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a deterioration in the stock market accompanied by people realizing that treasuries are more valuable uh, and therefore they're going to start to push treasury yields up. And then if, if, as that happens, it will further depress the, the stock market because it'll be another place where you can put your money. I want to warn everybody about, about getting in there just yet because it's entirely possible you could still take a hit on treasuries, but treasuries might not be a bad thing in the near future. And we got to look at it. Uh, it's not there yet. I want to talk also about um, uh, direct investments in companies that you know of through your own personal association. You know, there's something to be said for the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Um, if you know somebody with a business that's doing well and is looking for what's called friends and uh, friends and family financing, give it serious thought. Now, a lot of those little businesses get hurt disproportionately hard in economic downturns. So you got to be careful. But it's something that you might want to look at. Uh, we have long been, as you know, proponents of dividend stocks, and they've been holding up very well and paying very good dividends. I think there's still future for that, although I'm very nervous about multiples. At least you'll get you'll get the yield you signed up for. So let's say, for example, you buy General Motors stock today and you get a yield of three and a half percent and the price of General Motors stock drops precipitously. Uh, actually, you get higher than they get four percent. I think with General Motors. In fact, General Electric, you can get a three and a half percent yield. And let's say the stock price of one of those companies goes down dramatically. General Motors. Well, even if the stock price goes down and you don't sell, your yield doesn't go down. In fact, if the stock price goes down dramatically and they maintain their dividend, which most large dividend plays do over decades, you might even want to add more of that stock at that point when it drops in price because now your dividend yield is going to be even higher. So those are the kind of things you can look at. Um, I think uh, I'm very, very nervous uh, and I would urge people to avoid uh, junk bonds. 
not to say that there aren't some very, very good high yield bonds out there, uh, which uh, are being issued by companies that are not junk status in my mind. But if they carry a low enough uh, Moody's rating on their bonds, those bonds will do poorly in any kind of a downturn because people will be afraid that those companies are compromised and might be facing insolvency. So you got to be careful with junk bonds whenever you're talking about economic instability. So these are just a few comments on things that you can look at. Um, I continue to be very much against silver. I think if people are investing in silver, they're making a terrible mistake. I continue to think 20% or maybe even more at this point in gold makes a lot of sense uh, given the instability. And by the way, gold keeps doing well. Uh, It's amazing. Uh, We're not selling gold, but if you look at where it was when we first recommended people buy it uh, down in the 1100s, and if you look at uh, you know where it was today, uh, 1276, you know pushing up 1300 an ounce as of today, um, you know that's that's a very very decent protection for your money, and that protection only gets better in the face of a, s- a serious downturn. So anyway, lots of things to look at, um, lots of different places to put money which uh, are not tied to the S&P 500 uh, and have different fundamental reasons for investment. And um, that's what I could advise at this time for people who are looking at how to make sense of these very, very troubling economic times we're entering. Ronaldo, do you want to talk a little bit about the global economy? Because we haven't touched on that when we've been so quite as focused on what's going on here in the U.S. in recent shows. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, first of all, uh, Europe being led by Angela Merkel, um, who now almost everybody agrees around the world from a political point of view, is the leader of the free world. It's no longer the president of the United States. It's Angela Merkel. Uh, and Merkel's doing very, very well in Germany, uh, despite all the odds, despite having to integrate all those uh, refugees in a, sl- in a short period of time. Um, they continue to be leaders in the renewable energy field, so they're dramatically continuing to drop their reliance on fossil fuel, which actually is good for their economy because they're building up a lot of domestic industries that are using uh, German technology to tap and uh, not only to tap the energy in terms of, for example, windmills they buy from third parties, but the control systems that they're using. Um, they're, they're getting now into hydrogen electrolysis, which is something we all believe in here at the academy. Um, and their export markets are holding up. In fact, sad to say, but Germany will benefit and is, is already benefiting and will continue to benefit from the fall from grace that the United States is experiencing because so many countries and regions see Germany as a preferable partner in trade to the U.S. So I I expect that Germany, until the U.S. goes into recession, which will put pressure on Germany, I see Germany continue to do better. I see, of course, Canada has been doing phenomenally well this year. And I think, um, you know, will continue to do better and better. When the U.S. goes into recession, it will pull on Canada. The recession will not be as bad in Canada as in the U.S. There will be an impact for sure, but it won't be as bad. And therefore, Canada will come out of that recession, relatively speaking, in a stronger position than when it went in. I want to point out to people that the U.S. dollar has been falling, and that fall by 9% has made American exports more attractive. However, we're not increasing our export markets equivalently, which tells you that there's resistance to buying our products because of the current administration. But to give you an example, um, you know, in, in, in Canada today, uh, the Canadian dollar is at 79 cents. 
it was at 72 cents, which is a huge, it's 10% difference just a few months ago. So the world, and I could, I could go through other global currencies and you'd see a similar pattern. So you're seeing countries like Australia recognize that their future is better off with, with, with Germany than it is with the U.S. That's never happened in the history of the U.S.-Australian relationship. You're seeing countries in Southeast Asia picking Germany as a more predictable trade partner. Now, what about the rest of Europe? Well, Emmanuel Macron, so far the jury's out, but it looks like a lot of his initial things are starting to, 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 to take hold a little bit. Too early to tell, but France is certainly not sliding backwards, and I believe France is stabilized. And if Macron's policies actually fully imp get implemented, which there's still some question that they will, I think he can not only arrest the slide that's been going on in France, I think he can turn it around. I think the Italian economic slide has hit bottom, and I think you're going to see Italy slowly start crawling back in. Uh, clearly, um, the Greeks have hit bottom, and we know that for a fact because the Greeks just were able to go back into the international debt market for the first time two weeks ago, uh, and their offering came off very successfully. So Greece, with all of its turmoil and all of its unemployment and all of its craziness, is itself slowly picking itself up by its bootstraps. And again, a country inundated like Italy with uh, with illegal refugees uh, and refugees. Um, so what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing a enormous number of people. We, we call them environmental refugees, people fleeing their home countries because they literally can't live there any longer. Uh, the vast majority from Africa. Uh, who represent probably three to four million people this year already, which means that it's much larger than the Syrian refugee population. And we know that from climate change, those those environmental refugees are going to increase exponentially. Uh, just in, in, in the Republic of the Congo, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Just in that one country, um, they, they've, they've increased from 660,000 displaced people to a million just in a matter of the last couple of months. So these, and, and that's both climate change related and political instability related, but usually political instability and climate change are, are one and one. So where's the rest of the global economy? Right now, the global economy is performing as well as the U.S. economy. And there are certain parts of the global economy, India and China, continue to dramatically outperform the U.S. There are other parts of the economy that are substantially ahead of the U.S., I would say Singapore and some other places like that. And then there are places where they're uh, they're stabilizing and bottoming out and coming back, which is probably a good chunk of Europe. What's going to happen in Poland is anyone's guess because they have a political problem in Poland, not unlike our own problem in the U.S., and it is impacting them adversely. Uh, and there is fear in the Balkans of Russia intrusion. That's depressing some things there. But by and large, uh, the global economy is muddling along remarkably well and learning how to live without America as its uh, leader. And that can only be good for the whole global economy, bad for the U.S. And then, you know, this, this Venezuela situation, we, you know, it's really hard to understand what's, hap what's going to happen there. Um, but what is the effect on oil prices, and what do you see in terms of oil prices around the globe? You know, it's something we cover, so I just want to make sure we touch on it. Well, I, I don't think oil prices will be affected uh, I mean, even if there was a complete shutoff in Venezuela, you'd have an uptick in oil prices in the U.S. because we're like probably their number one imp importer of Venezuelan oil. But um, 
I don't think it would be a long-term impact because all it does is it creates a short-term supply disruption. Uh, prices will spike, and as fast as they spike, uh, more fracking will go on in the U.S. and other countries. And as more fracking occurs, it brings in oil at you know profitably at forty-five dollars a barrel, and um, there's just as much oil as people want at forty-five dollars a barrel. People used to think you couldn't make oil, you know, for those prices and be profitable. You had to be at sixty, seventy and above. Just not true. At forty-five dollars a barrel, you can make money, which is something we reported on the show more than a year ago, and that's exactly what's holding oil prices down. And by the way, in the process, doing a tremendous amount of damage to the Russian economy which is one of the reasons why Russia, I think, is being so aggressive on the political front. Uh, their economy continues to get squeezed harder and harder. Uh, the Saudis' economy uh, gets squeezed harder and harder, although in their case, their oil is so cheap, whatever they do pump, they pump at a profit. Their problem is that their their welfare state for Saudis, is and their 500-plus princes, is so extravagant that they need more than the profit they make from oil at $45 a barrel. Um, but they still are profitable at that price. So you're going to see all sorts of realignments in the uh, oil-producing nations. Some nations, like Qatar, are going to be out of oil soon, but have enormous reserves of natural gas, which today one would argue is actually more valuable than oil because it's the, the infrastructure for moving natural gas around the world is, is rapidly deploying. Um, so I, I, I don't see any long-term increase in oil prices. I think the trend is for it to stay where it is now and continue sideways for quite some time. I think you're going to see, as we have now, uh, what the, the country of India uh, has said that they're going to stop permitting uh, internal combustion engines to be built and sold in India after a certain time in the future. You've seen uh, the United Kingdom has come up with a similar statement. I think theirs is 2030. Uh, you've seen China uh, basically take a similar position that they want to eliminate uh, internal combustion engines in the future. Uh, and you've seen somebody, a company like um, Volvo, owned by the Chinese, saying that starting in the, in the 2019 model year, which is only a year plus away, uh, they won't be making anything that isn't either a hybrid or a, a non-internal combustion. Yeah. So you're looking at a significant sea change in the uh, electrification of automobiles, and you're looking at a sea change in how people are now turning to different transportation alternatives. Watch, I mean, as you know, Matt, and I hope that many of the people on the show know, I drive a hydrogen fuel cell car, which wouldn't have been possible two years ago. It is now, uh, which is an electric car that uses hydrogen gas, uh, which can be made from 100% green resources, um, hydrogen gas instead of batteries which has all sorts of advantages over an electric car. It is an electric car, but it doesn't use batteries, which means you don't have the all the environmental destruction associated with cobalt mining and, and disposal of all those batteries at the end of their life cycle. So hydrogen is the way of the future, undoubtedly, and more and more people are beginning to realize that. So first in transportation, ultimately in electrical generating capacity, um, you're going to see hydrogen entering the electrical uh, picture. And as we do that, uh, there will be a decrease in the demand for for oil as a fuel. Now, my my very dear friend Hazel Henderson has been pointing out for quite some time the way that the uh, analysts can avoid cratering the stock of companies like Exxon and and Shell and BP because if you look at all the oil that they're claiming that's in the ground that's a quote proven reserve which is what's on their balance sheet and you've heard me say many times in the show there's as much water on their balance sheet as there is 
oil because so much of that oil cannot be produced economically for a profit. What Hazel's been putting out lately, and she's right, and we've touched on it in the past ourselves, there's other uses for oil besides burning it. In fact, better uses. So oil is the feedstock for plastics, for example. Oil is the feedstock for numerous drugs. I mean, it's it, it, the, the pharmacological uses of, of oil as a base um, is enormous. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to use oil besides burning it in engines. And I think you're going to see more of that starting to happen. And that also will keep the price of oil in check because those uses, um, like sulfur drugs, for example, or plastics, only work if the price of oil is low. So I'm seeing a low price of oil going forward. I don't see any political resistance to fracking, although I think there should be some. And as a result, that fracking will keep the oil price down in the low, in the short term. In the long term, the switch off of oil will keep it low, even when fracking is, is no longer allowed. Yeah. I want to provide a, a little hint of optimism here, Ronaldo, because I think it's really important. Uh, the, the piece that you just mentioned about the various car companies and countries very focused on alternative fuel vehicles is really encouraging because there was a possibility with the United States claiming to want to walk away from the Paris Climate Accord that that whole deal would fall apart. But what we've seen instead is people really taking responsibility for their country's emissions, creating policies that steer people away. And, you know, the the fact that there will be no uh, internal combustion engine cars sold in the UK and India is huge on its own. But what it really does is send real strong market signals and changes consciousness among people who pay attention to these things, that this is actually happening, that this isn't, isn't a fantasy of some tree huggers. This is the future of the economy. That's right. And see, that and what it does is, and the reason why it's so important when people like China and India and the UK, when they come out like that, why it's so important is because it tells business what they should be making 10 years from now. And so then business turns on that and goes, okay, we get it. That's how we're going to make money 10 years from today. We're going, to get, we're going to get going now on making that technology ever more affordable and that technology ever more sophisticated. I mean, when Tesla announced his first electric vehicle, and I give Elon a lot of credit for uh, basically making a, driving an electric car cool, right? His first one was, what, $110,000? And the one he's, he's just now releasing, the Model 3, is, is $36,000, $39,000, I think it is, $39,000? It depends on the uh, options, you, yeah. Okay, and, and you got the Bolt, the General Motors Bolt, at or about the same price with even greater range than the Tesla. Probably not as sexy, but certainly. Well, you're now talking about very affordable cars. Uh, my my fuel cell car is in is in a very affordable range. So I mean, it, it, the, the whole point of it is, in fact, <laughs> my fuel cell car, Matt. I decided to lease it. I've never leased a car in my life, but I'm convinced that the technology of fuel cells is going to advance so fast in the next three years, I'd rather turn it in and not be penalized for having three-year-old technology. So I leased a car for the first time in my life. For the car, for three years, including all of the fuel I burned for that three years, only cost me $349 a month. Brand new car with more features than I've had in any car in my life. So the technology is moving along because people in the business world get that that's where it's going. So they will beat those deadlines that China and India and UK have put out. They'll beat those deadlines because they'll be pushing these technologies like Elon is, like General Motors is now. And as they push those technologies into the future, 
the acceleration of the what's called adapt adaptation cycle will will accelerate. Uh, I want to make one other comment, which is if people are interested in following how fast this is happening, there is no better place in the world to go than Hazel Henderson's Green Energy Transition Scoreboard. It, it appears that right now, on a global basis, we have something close to $20 trillion, $19, 20000000000000 trillion invested in the green transition. That's real money. And, 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 and I think that we, when you go to that green transition scoreboard, take a look at it and, and also take a look at um, what, what she's doing there with ethic marks, with the idea of ethical advertising. I mean, Hazel's been a one-woman band helping us understand the potential of green energy, the necessity for green energy, and the economic viability today of green energy plays. So I really urge everybody, please go there, sign up. She has a free RSS feed. It's excellent. And uh, stay in tune with, with, with Hazel Henderson. She's one of the great seers, economic seers, alive today on the planet. And her website, for everyone who wants to visit, is ethicalmarkets.com. Ethicalmarkets.com. Yeah, and that says it all, right? She's about helping create ethical markets. And for earlier on the show, when we were talking about the fund at First Affirmative, um, if you are interested in uh, investing with that fund, we can connect you with First Affirmative. All you have to do is send us an email to info at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's I-N-F-O at worldbusiness.org. Ronald, yeah. is there anything else you want to add here before we close? I, I, two things. Uh, first of all, I, I want in the next show, I want to whet everybody's appetite. There's been some conversation in the last two weeks about money laundering. And the implications of money laundering in the political sector and Russians and all that sort of thing, which is great. But what I'd like to do, uh, and I've now I've discovered even in my own family, I've been explaining what money laundering is. How do we track it down? Why is it that the that someone like Robert Mueller is able to find transactions that are eight and nine years old dealing with Kazakhstan when no one was talking about it just you know two or three weeks ago? How does that happen? How does money laundering occur? How do we track it? How do we eventually unearth it when we want to? And I'd love to talk about that next week on the show, Matt. So let's let's invite everybody to come back for that conversation. Number two, I want to invite everybody again. The best antidote to cynicism, and it's very easy to be cynical today, is to keep finding things to be optimistic about. And there's no better place than the free service the Academy puts out called Optimist Daily. We send you five stories Monday through Friday in your email, and you can read them all in less than three minutes. And every single one of them is about some solution, something positive that's happening somewhere in the world you probably didn't know about. And as a result, gives you the belief that, hey, not only is there lots of negative stuff on the papers every day, and Lord knows there is, look at all these positive things that are emerging at the local level, emerging from the business community, emerging from the scientific community that really can help us and do help us if we just focus on the positive. As my friend um, Yurian likes to say, the editor-in-chief of that publication, there's more solutions than problems. We just don't realize they exist. So please, info at World Business. Tell us to put you on the list. You'll get a free subscription to Optimist Daily. It's the best way to start your day, I promise you. With that, Ronaldo, I want to thank you for another great show and thank our listeners for listening. Please do pass on the link to the show to your friends and share it on social media. Thanks, Ronaldo. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye now.